Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Uh, for those of you perhaps have never listened to our shows, which run every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m., we're both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England and graduated there with a degree in herbal medicine. And we run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions. We manufacture all our own certified organic herbal extracts, which are either grown on our CCUF certified herb farm or which are sourced from other certified organic supplies. You're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM. And from 7.30 until the end of the show, 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated to this month's continuing topic on the thyroid, its role in health, and the uh, use of coconut oil as a means of weight loss and improved thyroid function. The number here, if you live in the area, is 923-3911, or if you live outside the area, the toll-free number is 1-800-KMUD-RAD, which is 5683723. So we can also be reached toll-free on 1-888-WBM-HERB for further questions during normal business hours, Monday through Friday. So to carry on from uh, last month's uh, expose on uh, the polyunsaturated versus saturated fat controversy that's raging right now, um, I wanted to mention right from the get-go that some of this material has been copied uh, from Dr. Ray Peat and that this uh, material is not something that we have produced, although in between the other excerpts uh, the material is ours. Um, so I wanted to carry on, like I said, from last month and just carry on this expose uh, of a fairly startling turnaround uh, for some people at least in the belief that uh, polyunsaturated fats are good and that saturated fats are bad and that actually uh, it's seemingly very much the other way around and that our ancestors and our grandparents had it right the first time around eating lots of saturated fat, animal fats, uh, eating butter, milk, cream, dairy products uh, were very healthy and actually had very, very low incidences of cancer, diabetes and obesity, things which have shot up since the 1920s. So a lot of the things that we're going to say for some people will be uh, cheeringly applauded by those people perhaps who are in their 50s and 60s or a little older even who used to eat just the same kind of things that we're going to be covering and talking about. Uh, and to another group of people, uh, might be very shocking. Uh, so I don't mean to shock people, but I um, just want to make these other viewpoints known so that those people who uh, do find some thread of truth in it can actually hold on to it and find out more. Uh, most of this information is freely available on the web, and the web is increasing in popularity as time goes on as a source of material uh, for all different viewpoints. And the truth is out there. If you just want to search for it, you will find it. So I wanted to carry on. The, uh, the whole end of the uh, war, the uh, Second World War, uh, essentially then the seed oil industry was in a crisis point. And the uh, traditional use of seed oils, uh, such as flaxseed oil in paints and plastics, was being displaced uh, by new compounds made from petroleum. Uh, and the industry itself needed new markets. Uh, it was discovered uh, that ways to convince the public that seed oils were better than animal fats were introduced, and they called their seed oils heart protective. Uh, even though human studies soon showed the same results that the animal studies had, uh, namely that they were toxic to the heart and increased the incidence of cancer. Uh, this all came about from the 1920s and 1930s experiments with animals on feedlots uh, that were... Uh, basically put there for the last six or eight weeks of their life to 
increase their weight, uh, become more saleable and more valuable by having an increased uh, portion of fat on their bodies. Uh, and that essentially they uh, started using um, coconut oil. Uh, it was basically a fairly cheap uh, imported tropical oil that was a saturated fat uh, that they believed would be a pretty good feed source uh, for cattle uh, and other ruminant animals to increase their weight gain prior to slaughter and that that would help the industry and would help the farmers and everyone would get more money and that the, uh, uh, the product would be appreciated. So they started feeding these animals uh, coconut oil with a saturated fat and lo and behold, uh, rather than gaining weight, the animals actually lost weight. Um, anyway, so they soon changed their plans there from coconut oil. Uh, they suddenly switched to uh, corn oil uh, and uh, soy oil. Now, when they did that, lo and behold, the animals started gaining weight. So they suddenly uh, thought, okay, well, this was a good idea. Soy and corn did the trick, put lots of weight on animals, even though these animals would never be eating it, unlike you know, like coconut oil, they'd never be eating that either. But as a foodstuff, it was certainly a hit in terms of gaining uh, weight on the animals. Um, but essentially, the long-term effects of these fats and oils uh, were pretty toxic, and the animals themselves were certainly unable to continue eating this for more than seven or eight weeks before they started getting uh, very serious inflammatory disorders that were eventually life-threatening and would kill them. So eight weeks was about as much as they could feed these animals before they started dying uh, of gastrointestinal disorders uh, from eating these products that they should never be eating in the first place. So that doesn't surprise anybody. So ultimately, the uh, coconut oil was thrown out and this huge campaign was started to um, alert the American public that these cheap tropical imported oils were not very good for you, they were toxic, uh, and actually that they should be uh, kicked out and that the uh, alternatives would be USA-grown corn and soy. Uh, and lo and behold, with the uh, chemical and uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry behind this, uh, fairly big players in pharmaceutical uh, production, uh, was that the corn and the soy uh, were there again other very important crops to be genetically engineered and the seeds to be owned so that uh, they were a product that could be sold and owned independently rather than uh, a wild product, a wild seed that no one had the rights to and that people could get freely. So soy and corn soon became rapidly uh, two very big U.S. crops uh, and rapidly the information was disseminated that soy and corn were very good for you, they were polyunsaturated, they were good for your heart, they were good for cholesterol, uh, they were good for lots of things and everyone should be eating lots of it. Uh, and the propaganda was uh, promoted by a lot of money and um, soon it became very commonplace that these oils uh, uh, were good for you and that everyone should be eating it. And so obviously the, uh, the, the natural production of these two crops rapidly increased as did the awareness or the false awareness that these things were good for you. So uh, getting on to the uh, point um, that the uh, animals were fed these things and they gained weight, um, despite the widespread acceptance and the, the lipid hypothesis uh, which we cover has never really been proven uh, an oil researcher, Mary Enig, PhD, and Sally Fallon, uh, founder and director of the Western A. Price Foundation, point out in their article uh, called The Secrets of the Edible Oil Industry that the lipid theory was first proposed by David Krichchevsky, uh, a Russian researcher who in 1954 published a paper describing the effects of feeding cholesterol to rabbits. 
Now, by showing that polyunsaturated oils from vegetable sources lowered uh, serum cholesterol at least temporarily in humans, says Enig, uh, Krzyzewski appeared to show that the findings from the animal trials were relevant to the coronary heart disease problem, that the lipid hypothesis was a valid explanation uh, for the new epidemic of heart disease, and that by reducing animal products in their diets, Americans could avoid heart disease. Uh, So soon the United States was on an anti-cholesterol campaign. Uh, In 1956, an American Heart Association fundraiser was shown on all three major TV networks. Uh, Panelists uh, presented the lipid hypothesis as the cause of America's heart disease epidemic and recommended a prudent diet in which corn oil, margarine and chicken replace butter, lard, beef and eggs. But the panel was not unanimous. Dudley White, MD, Dr. Dudley White, disagreed with his AHA colleagues by noting that heart disease in the form of myocardial infarction, MI, was non-existent in 1900, when egg consumption was three times what it was in 1956, and when corn oil was completely unavailable. I mean, who would have ever thought of making oil from corn anyways? How much corn would you have to squeeze or process or do what to to get a teaspoon of oil? When pressed to support the prudent diet, Dr. White replied, See here, I began my practice as a cardiologist in 1921, and I never saw an uh, MI patient until 1928. Back in the MI-free days before 1920, the fats were butter and lard. And I think we would all benefit from the kind of diet we had at that time when no one had ever heard the words corn oil. But unfortunately, his observations fell on deaf ears, and ads in the Journal of the American Medical Association described Wesson oil. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Wesson oil. It's a famous corn oil manufacturer. So the AMA described Wesson oil as a cholesterol depressant. Mazzola, another large corn oil company, advertisements claimed that, quote, science finds corn oil important to your health. And medical journal ads recommended Fleischmann's unsalted margarine for patients with high blood pressure. Dr. Frederick Stair, head of Harvard University's nutrition department, wrote a syndicated column in which he encouraged the consumption of up to a cup of corn oil per day. Great. Meanwhile, experimenters found that feeding a diet that totally lacked the essential fatty acids produced animals with remarkable properties. They consumed oxygen and calories at a very high rate, says Dr. Uh, Ray Pete. Their mitochondria were unusually tough and stable. Their tissues could be transplanted into other animals without provoking immunological rejection. And they were very hard to kill by trauma and a wide variety of toxins that easily provoked lethal shock in animals on the usual polyunsaturated oil diet. As German researchers had seen in 1927, They had a low susceptibility to cancer, and new studies showed that they weren't susceptible to various fibrotic conditions, including alcoholic liver cirrhosis. Dr. Mary Enig points out that other researchers conducted population studies that showed that the animal model used by Krzyzewski, especially one that used vegetarian animals, was not a valid approach to the problem of heart disease in human omnivores. She cites studies conducted in the 1950s showing that the presence of arterial plaque 
which is considered a symptom of heart disease, is a natural process that has nothing to do with diet. American soldiers killed during the Korean War had severe, I mean, similar amounts of severity of plaques, 75%, as Japanese natives whose diet was lower in animal products at 65%. And the largely vegetarian Bantu in South African had just as much occlusions or plaque buildup in their arteries as other races in South Africa who ate more meat. In 1957, Dr. Norman Joliffe, director of the Nutritional Bureau of the New York Health Department, launched an anti-coronary club for businessmen aged 40 to 59. All were placed on the previously mentioned prudent diet, and results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1966. Those on the prudent diet of corn oil, margarine, fish, chicken, and cold cereal had an average serum cholesterol 30 points lower than the meat and potatoes control group. But the more important statistics were the heart disease deaths of eight prudent diet followers, while none of those who ate meat three times a day died. Joe Leaf himself died in 1961 from a vascular thrombosis, although his obituaries listed the cause of death as complications from diabetes. Larger follow-up studies produced the same results, and an ambitious million-man diet heart study was abandoned for reasons of cost when its chairman died of a heart attack. In the 1960s, interest in organ transplantation led to the discovery that polyunsaturated fats prolong graft survival by suppressing the immune system. Immunosuppression was considered to have a role in the carcinogenicity of the essential fatty acids, says Dr. Pete. So, so just to reiterate that, that the polyunsaturated fatty acids suppress the immune system. That's the, uh, that's the crux of that last uh, sentence, isn't it? Yeah, so in the 1960s, they found that if people who had just recently had an organ transplant, if they were taking in a lot of polyunsaturated fats in their diet, their immune system was suppressed and they didn't reject right. okay. the transplant. At around the same time, there were studies showing that unsaturated fats retarded brain development and produced obesity. In addition, the age-related glycation products that are usually blamed on sugar are largely the result of peroxidation of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Okay, that's one of the other important things about the polyunsaturated fatty acids is because they are polyunsaturated, uh, they're very susceptible to lipid peroxidation, which is oxidation of the molecule because they, they're not stable unlike saturated fats that are completely saturated, the bonds are saturated, and they're very stable oils. And they don't go rancid very quickly. I mean, coconut oil has a very long shelf life. Through the 1970s, information about the harmful effects of polyunsaturated fatty acids was slowly being assimilated. And by 1980, it looked as though reasonable researchers would see the promotion of cancer, heart disease, mitochondrial damage, hypothyroidism, and immune suppression caused by these polyunsaturated fats as their most important feature, and they would see that there had never been a basis for believing that these were essential fats. But then, without acknowledging that there had ever been a problem with the doctrine of essentiality, fat researchers just started changing the subject, shifting public discourse to safer, more profitable topics. As a result, the old discredited theories about polyunsaturated fats are alive and well for the past 68 years, and so are the inaccurate health claims that replace them. 
Most of us are so used to hearing that saturated fats harm health while polyunsaturated fats improve it that the recommendations of experts like Dr. Mary Enig, Dr. Ray P., and Dr. Bruce Fife require mental adjustments. Get acquainted with pasture-fed butter, lard, and tallow products and other traditionally saturated fats like coconut oil. Throw away the canola, corn, sunflower, safflower, sesame, soy. Stay away from anything that contains polyunsaturated fats. Kiss tofu goodbye and forget soy milk, soy yogurt, soy cheese, soy protein, and soy lecithin. For good measure, says Dr. Pete, stay away from commercially raised chicken. Animals that eat polyunsaturated fats don't produce saturated fat. Dr. Pete explains when you eat their meat, you're eating polyunsaturated fat with all of the adverse effects of soy and corn oil. Because polyunsaturated fats are perceived as healthful, the meat, milk, and egg industries are working on ways to promote these products, which are incredibly harmful, as desired. The beef industry is doing so, he says, by treating soy oil so that it won't be broken down in the cattle's rumen. I think that's a factor in causing scrapie and mad cow disease, he says, since it was already established that the equivalent disease in chickens, called crazy chick syndrome, is caused by too much polyunsaturated fat in the diet. Chickens don't have a rumen, so they are much more susceptible to these oils than cows and sheep. Okay, it's 7.18 now. You're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD 91.1. And from 7.30 until the end of the show, 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions either related or unrelated to this month's topic, uh, which is a continuation on the thyroid gland, its role in the health uh, and maintenance of the human body, and uh, coconut oil as a means to uh, lose weight and improve your thyroid function. Okay, so in 1995, uh, researchers studied 25,862 participants at the Colorado Statewide Health Fair. Uh, They discovered that among patients not taking thyroid medication, 9% were hypothyroid, they had an underactive thyroid, and 1% were hyperthyroid, with an overactive thyroid. Now this indicates that 10% clearly of the population had a thyroid problem that had most likely gone unrecognized. Now these figures suggest that nationally, there may be as many as uh, 13 million Americans with an undiagnosed thyroid problem. Uh, in her book, Living Well with Hypothyroidism, What Your Doctor Doesn't Tell You That You Need to Know, uh, Mary Shamon quotes endocrinologist Kenneth Blanchard, MD, of Lower Newton Falls, Massachusetts, as saying, The key thing is doctors are always told that thyroid-stimulating hormone is a test that gives us a yes or no answer. And, in fact, I think that's fundamentally wrong. The pit- commonly called TSH. Right, the TSH test. Um, okay, so what they were saying that it's uh, commonly wrong. <clears throat> now, in fact, I think that's uh, wrong, very much so. The pituitary TSH uh, is controlled not just by how much T4 and T3 is in circulation, uh, but T4 is getting converted to T3 at the pituitary level. Now, excess T3 generated at the pituitary level can falsely suppress uh, TSH. Uh, Hence, many people who are simply tested for TSH are found to be within normal, uh, in parentheses, normal range. They are, in fact, suffering from thyroid problems that are going undetected. Now, consequently, Rita Arem, MD, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at Bayer College of Medicine, agrees. Uh, He says that hypothyroidism may exist despite normal TSH levels. In his book, The Thyroid Solution, he says, Many people may be suffering 
from minute imbalances that have not yet resulted in abnormal blood tests. If we included people with low-grade hypothyroidism whose blood tests are normal, the frequency of hypothyroidism would no doubt exceed 10% of the population. Now, what is of special concern, though, is that many people whose test results are dismissed as normal could continue to have symptoms of an underactive thyroid. Their mood, emotion, and overall well-being are affected by this imbalance, yet they are not receiving the care they need to get to the root of their problems. Even if the TSH level is in the lower segment of normal, a person may still be suffering from low-grade hypothyroidism. Thus, if we were to include those who may be suffering from low-grade hypothyroidism, the number could well be double the 13 million estimate from the Colorado study. Now, while more research needs to be done, it is generally accepted that diet plays a major role in thyroid health. Now, for decades we've known that low iodine intake leads to low thyroid function and eventually to goiter. Now, the goiter is the large swelling around the thyroid cartilage as the thyroid swells in response to a, a decrease in thyroxine and uh, other thyroid hormones. Um, now, iodized salt uh, was intended to solve this problem, uh, but it's not been the answer. There are a number of foods known as goitogens uh, that block iodine. Uh, two goitogens are quite prevalent in the American diet. Uh, one is peanuts and peanut butter and soya beans, uh, used most often in prepared foods as textured vegetable protein, uh, known as TVP, which is a refined soy food and soybean oil. Uh, we mentioned the uh, the growing, the, the widespread growing of soy and corn in the 1930s uh, and the subsequent uh, GMO uh, control of this by big multinational companies. Uh, the rise of industrialization, uh, corporate farming, and mass production of food has drastically changed our food supply from what our ancestors ate. Uh, many studies now show the detrimental effects of refined sugars and grains on our health. These foods are very taxing on the thyroid gland and we consume them in large quantities. Uh, environmental stress such as chemical pollutants, pesticides, mercury and fluoride are also tough on the thyroid. A growing body of evidence suggests that fluoride, uh, which is prevalent in toothpaste, and water treatment may inhibit the functioning of the thyroid gland. Additionally, mercury may diminish thyroid function because it displaces the trace mineral selenium, and selenium is involved in the conversion of thyroid hormones T4 to T3. Okay, so uh, that's certainly uh, food for thought in terms of uh, the effects of modern uh, farming and uh, modern industrialization, uh, and how these things have certainly become the norm and how uh, the prevalence of the diseases, uh, obesity, cancer and diabetes, have shot through the roof, as it were, uh, and pretty much so connected uh, to the ingestion of these food groups, as these food groups are very specifically uh, thyroid or thyrotoxic in many ways, that they slow the thyroid function down or stop it altogether in some cases. I think it's true enough to say that uh, people that have uh, fairly what you would call normal uh, thyroid function tests that are on the border of being uh, hypothyroid, uh, there are several different things that can be done uh, even in your home uh, without any complicated uh, chemical analysis and that pretty much uh, 
pretty much confirm the diagnosis of hypothyroidism. So there's, Sarah, perhaps you want to talk about some of the things perhaps that would be uh, useful for people they can try out themselves. And if any of the uh, signs or symptoms are present, then these people may well do uh, themselves a lot of good to find out more information on the Internet or from other sources to see, in fact, whether a thyroid replacement, either a glandular or a prescription, uh, would be useful for them. Well, I think the best place to start is always with your diet. And everyone could benefit from taking coconut oil. It will help from eating coconut oil internally. It will help your skin externally. From applying it externally, it will help your skin externally. It helps your thyroid gland. helps improve your metabolism. It's very beneficial for everybody to eat coconut oil. Well, what's, what's some of the main benefits of coconut oil? I just mentioned a few of them, that it okay. can help as an emollient for your skin. It helps improve your metabolism. All of our body is um, has, well, we store a lot of saturated fat in our body, and that helps to um, maintain a healthy level of fat. I think a real low-fat diet can be very detrimental. You won't gain weight eating coconut oil. But something you could do in your home to assess your thyroid function would be to take your temperature. People should have a fairly normal body temperature from 98 to 98.6. That's normal. You can buy a thermometer, especially useful as a basal body thermometer from any pharmacy. And you can take your temperature before and after you eat breakfast and before and after you eat lunch. And as well as your pulse, your pulse should be around normal, which is 70 to 85. And that's, those are some things that you can assess with low thyroid. It's not definitive, so don't think that just because you might have a slightly lowered temperature or a slightly lowered pulse that that's it, you're hypothyroid. It's, of course, always best to work with a practitioner in assessing your symptoms and your temp- to read your temperature and your pulse to come up with what, uh, come up with a proper diagnosis of, of exactly what's going on with your system. Can I just quickly read out a couple of uh, um, sample questions that people maybe would be able to answer? These would all be things that, uh, for the greater number of yes to these questions, uh, there would be more of a basis for wanting to find out more information about your uh, your own self in terms of your thyroid health. Um, so some of these questions will be things like, have you experienced infertility or miscarriage, uh, especially if this is for women? Uh, are you feeling like you're getting every infection that goes around, or is it taking longer for you to recuperate from infections? Uh, do you regularly eat significant amounts of uncooked uh, goitogenic foods, such as Brussels sprouts, broccoli, rutabaga, turnips, uh, radishes, cauliflower, and... Uh, Millet, okay, and cabbage and kale, again, are two other goitogenic foods. And then are you experiencing changes in your menstrual cycle, as in the cycle is too short or long, or your period has become very heavy or very light? Now, there is actually, a, uh, I think it's a two or three to one uh, ratio in gender of female to male, that uh, certainly more females seem to get hypothyroidism than males. And that's because females have higher estrogen levels, and estrogen is a very powerful thyroid suppressant. But in a healthy woman, your estrogen should be in balance with your progesterone, which is a powerful thyroid stimulant and supportive to your thyroid. And I just want to mention one thing there, Andrew, about the goitrogenic foods. 
plants in the brassica family, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, those are all meant to be cooked. I mean, everybody knows if they eat these vegetables raw, they have terrible gas, terrible indigestion. But if you cook them till they're soft and they don't cause any gas, then you've taken away the, um, the potential for them to cause a goiter and to suppress your thyroid. So the person who wrote these questions out isn't suggesting that you don't eat them. They just said to not eat them raw. Okay, well, did you want to, you want to carry on? Okay. Did you want to, do you have any more um, questions well, you want to? Well, there's lots of questions here, but they were some of the more, uh, the more obvious ones. So many of these dietary unsaturated fatty acids, dietary um, polyunsaturated oils, can negatively affect the thyroid health. We cook them almost every day, and they are plentiful in commercially prepared foods. Expeller-pressed or solvent-extracted oils only became a major part of the American diet in the last century. It is possible they are among the worst offenders when it comes to the thyroid. They are known as vegetable oils or polyunsaturated oils. The most common source of these oils used in commercially prepared foods is the soybean. And I don't mean that you have to eat a lot of these oils in order to suppress your thyroid. Yes, the more you eat, the more suppressed it will be. But it can even be as much as one teaspoon a day. That's quite a scary thought. Large-scale cultivation of soybeans in the United States began after World War II and quickly increased to 140 billion pounds per year. Most of the crops are produced for animal feed and soy oil for hydrogenated fats such as margarine and shortening. Very poor quality fats, very cheap and expensive fats to produce. Roundup Ready corn and Roundup Ready soy. When we traveled across the Midwest, we saw so many fields of Roundup Ready corn and Roundup Ready soy. And these are the food staple of America. This is what's being made into oil. And of course, we all know that the oils of animals and plants (coughs) suppress. I mean, it contained the toxic compounds of whatever has been applied to them, the pesticides, the herbicides. It's in the oil. And here, uh, most of America is eating corn and soy oil in products. And those two uh, plants are grown with a huge amount of chemicals. Michael Moore's expose on the, uh, um, the, the, the burger diet, when he was just he had a 30-day uh, he was just eating McDonald's and he was just eating, you know, he was getting always encouraged to get the supersized version and, and how he was suddenly gone, his blood pressure was going through the roof, his pulse was going up, he'd gained all this weight. and he His was liver enzymes. His doctor was trying to pull him off it because he was worried that he was going to... I don't think that was a Michael Moore, though. No, I thought it was Michael Moore. Oh, no, I think that well, was... Well, you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> supersize Mc- me, I think. Supersize. Called, yeah. And then there was the other thing, the, uh, the other expose on uh, corn... The uh, high fructose corn syrup that's prevalent in the uh, almost every processed food, mm. almost everything that you see on a store, if you pick up, pick up the uh, package and look at it, has high fructose corn syrup in it. And it's become the common sweeter. No longer is sugar or honey used because, of course, it's too expensive. Uh, but high fructose corn syrup is really readily available, and they grow it massive, widespread, thousands of hectares, Roundup ready. Okay, great. Okay, I think there's a caller on the line. Hello. Hello. That's why I make a distinction in my life, and I've started talking to people about it. There's a difference between food 
and food-like products. Yes. Exactly. And um, when I'm out and about with people, I just do those little bits of education, you know, steering yep. away from the food-like products. Yep. This education is what it's all about. You need to, people need to be educated as to what's happening because most of it is a common misconception that, oh, this, this is okay or this is acceptable because it's on sale. It doesn't mean that at all. Yes, and also, um, especially when they ask me if I want ketchup or jam right. at a restaurant, I say, do you know that stuff has high fructose corn syrup and that has E. Right. coli in it? So just those little spots of education here and there. Mm-hmm. Thank right. you. Very well good. done. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Keep Bye. up the good work. It's there's, unfortunate. There's one more caller, I think, on the line. Hello? Hi. Hello? Hello? Hi. You're on the air. Okay. Uh, you guys have neglected to discuss the issue regarding the omega-6 and omega-3 fats and the ratios. And I wanted to recommend a book um, called The Omega Diet. It's written, uh, it's a long Greek name. It's Artemis P. Simopoulos, S-I-M-O-P-O-U-L-O-S, and Joe Robinson. And I wanted your feedback on that. Uh, as I understand it, there's there's actually mountains of evidence coming out now that, that uh, show that they're having a higher ratio. I think it's the omega-6 fats makes a big difference for health issues of many variety and and the the most affordable oil that's high in omega-6 is canola but also i think flax and walnut oil are the other ones i think i think that's right but anyway i wanted your your feedback on that because you haven't discussed that at all uh, on this show or the last show thanks a lot okay thank you so um, a question and answer, what about essential fatty acids? Aren't some polyunsaturated fatty acids essential, as we all believe? They what happen, they and believe? we're taught. During the last 30 years, Dr. Ray Pete has asked prominent oil researchers for evidence that there is such a thing as an essential fatty acid. One professor cited a single publication about a single patient who recovered from an illness after taking unsaturated fat. If he had known of any better evidence, wouldn't he have mentioned it, asked Dr. Pete. The others, if they had answered at all, cited Burr and Burr, 1929, a study that tested rats. The surprising thing about that question is that these people would consider any research from 1929 to be definitive. That's like quoting the 1929 opinion of a physicist regarding the procedure for making a hydrogen bomb. What was known about nutrition in 19 19- 29. Most of the B vitamins weren't even suspected to exist. Burr had no way of understanding what deficiencies or toxicities were present in his experimental diet. Two years before Burr's experiment, says Dr. Pete, German researchers found that a fat-free, fat-free diet prevented almost all spontaneous cancers in rats. Later work showed that polyunsaturated fats both promote and initiate cancer. With that knowledge, he says, the people who kept claiming that linoleic, linolenic, and maybe arachidonic acid are essential fatty acids should have devoted some effort to finding out about how much of that essential nutrient was enough so that people could minimize their consumption of the carcinogenic stuff. And I, the way I'd like to logically look at this um, situation with polyunsaturated fats is that how did we get to where we are today? What did our ancestors eat? Did they eat bottles of essential fatty acids, canola oil? Did they make oil from canola, from sunflowers? They might have eaten sunflowers, but they wouldn't have made oil from sunflowers necessarily because it was much easier 
to make oil from olive and coconut and butter. And how much fish were they eating? Well, probably not that much fish. Well, it depends where they lived. I mean, of course, some people well, ate deep fish. Deep sea fish. I mean, what were they doing? Were they right? They wouldn't have eaten as much tuna. And only salmon, when they could catch it from the shore or close to the shore, they wouldn't have traveled 40 miles out in the ocean. I mean, maybe in some areas where the ocean's calmer, but definitely not in our Pacific Ocean, where it could be very scary 40 miles out in a, a paddle boat. That's how I logically like to look at it. Let's, come, let's get back to basics and say, what is it that we used to eat? How did we get to where we are today? Okay, there's a caller on the line. Hello? Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Yes, um, thanks for your show. It's been re- really uh, interesting for me because I've heard all my life how poly- how good polyunsaturated oils are. Most of us have, yeah. Um, I Hello? Uh-oh. Of, uh, Could you, I'm sorry, I, I think we had a little bit of interruption between uh, the last 20 seconds or so, so just reiterate what you were saying. Okay. I have a basal temperature of, of 96.8 okay. uh, consistently in the morning. Okay. And then I eat, and it, it stays the same. It's, right. Well, and I have a, a number of symptoms, well, that's like a sign three or four symptoms of, of hypothyroidism. Right. Okay. And I've painted iodine on me, and, and it's disappeared within 12 hours. So I'm wondering, do you, do you think I should get a prescription for the Armour Thyroid, or what do you think? Well, the best thing to do would be to go talk to a doctor who's open-minded and knows a lot about thyroid. One of those doctors was Connie Bash. Unfortunately, she's moved to San Francisco. Another doctor is Beverly Copeland, and she's also open to um, alternative methods for testing uh, thyroid, alternative being taking your temperature and having symptoms that match a hypothyroidism picture. Alternatively, you can buy um, glandular thyroid extracts from health food stores and online. Most of them are bovine, but... I think there are some porcine available, but I always recommend it's better for people to see a practitioner and work with a practitioner because you don't want to take too much thyroid. It's definitely not safe. And besides that, you know, something like the diet would be the first place to start. Yeah. Okay. And not eating uh, those thyroid suppressive foods that we've mentioned. Uh Uh-huh, which which I have eaten in the past, and and I'll avoid the polyunsaturated oils, and possibly I'm thinking that eat some seaweed for the thyroid. Well, the thing with the um, iodine is, yes, you can have a deficiency of iodine, and that can lead to hypothyroidism, but also too much iodine can lead to hypothyroidism. So it's a really delicate balance, and maybe you just want to eat some very occasionally. Okay. Thanks for your help. You're you're welcome. welcome. There's one more caller. Hello. You're on the left. Hello. Hello. Oh, good. (laughs) Hi. Um... Thanks for the show. I got a call from my sister yesterday. Her cholesterol is 280. Okay. And she asked me, and I love getting this call, what can I do naturally, you know? So the first thing I said to her is you have to start eating the right oils. Right. And uh, I wondered if you could distill some more advice for her, some steps she can take towards lowering the cholesterol. Well... Cholesterol is often raised because of too much sugar and carbohydrates in the diet. So Ah. when you say good oils, I mean, if heart attacks, myocardial infarctions were unknown before 1920, what were the oils, what were people eating? How did we get Mm. to where we are? Well, they ate coconut if they lived in tropical climates. If they lived in Europe, they ate butter and lard, animal fat. 
animal fat in this day and age is not something you want to be eating because the animals are fed so many horrible things and given so many antibiotics. But butter, organic butter, organic coconut oil, a small amount of olive oil, those are some good oils to start. And decreased grains and sugars would be a healthy healthy place to start in her diet, in my opinion. Yeah, this is the first I heard that corn oil and polyunsaturates in general could be so harmful. I don't know if they're directly related to cholesterol. Uh, But high fructose corn syrup is something I presume she should avoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, there's just instead of eating so many carbohydrates and sugar foods that get converted to fat and cholesterol, to eat instead more protein, and even for vegetarians, fruit has a lot of protein in it. Potatoes have a very good quality protein, and that would be one carbohydrate she could eat. I don't know if she's vegetarian or not. If she was a meat eater. sugars get get converted into cholesterol? Sugars get converted into fat, yes, and they can also raise your cholesterol levels. You look, there's lots of... You have to start with some kind of lipid structure to make... Well, cholesterol, your body makes uh, cholesterol on its own. People who have a fat-free diet, they can still have cholesterol levels off the chart. But the other thing I want to say about cholesterol is that a recent research that was was either Harvard or Stanford came out saying that people who had a cholesterol of around 230 over the age of 50 were less likely to die of heart attacks, cancer, and degenerative diseases than those who had a cholesterol below 200. And we all know that well, maybe we don't all know, but the, the average number that they say you should have your um, cholesterol under is under 200. Right. And now they're coming out with these results saying, well, look, this study of these people, it was a 10-year study. These people that were in their 70s versus people that had high and lower cholesterol, the people that had the higher cholesterol live longer. Live longer because cholesterol is a protective function in the body. It's a natural protective function. Every one of our cells in the body, in our body, is has a cholesterol membrane. And right. it can also I but think what about plaque buildup in the arteries? That's what's supposed to be the big concern with it. Well, that's what they're saying is a lot more contributed con- coming from an increase of sugars in the diet and also these polyunsaturated oils because they're trans, fat, uh, trans fatty acids and they're an odd-shaped molecule. Right. Just think before the Industrial Revolution, we would have never tried to make oil from corn. Who right. would think of it? Yeah, maybe we'd eat corn and eating corn in small amounts. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially the way it traditionally it's used is like right. masa harina. Mm-hmm. It's fermented and soaked and much more digestible. But corn in large quantities in the form of oil has been shown to, you know, suppress the immune system. There's lots of information on the Internet. All you need to do is just Google it. Yeah, I wonder, Michael Powell's new book is about corn. We're always called corn-fed and stuff. It's like, right. Oh, my, we're too, way too corny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, well, thanks a lot. Okay, you're very welcome. Thanks for your call. Bye. Thank you. So, Sarah, did you, I, I think you were, okay, you're going to carry on. All right. So large-scale cultivation of soybeans in the United States began after World War II and quickly increased to 140 billion pounds per year. So that's, you know, mid-1940s. Most of the crops are produced for animal feed and soy oil for hydrogenated fats such as margarine and shortening. Today, it is nearly impossible, absolutely impossible, to eat at restaurants or buy packaged foods 
that don't have soy oil in the ingredients. Often labels simply state vegetable oil. That reminds me of the caller who called in and said food and food like products. Most Americans eat food like products. Even bread has dough conditioners in it, iodine bromate, yeast bread made with yeast, which is highly indigestible. Iodine bromate is enough. If Americans eating bread every day, it has enough iodine bromate in it to suppress your thyroid. Okay, I think there's another caller or two on the line. Yeah, hi there. Am I am I with you? Yes, yes you're, you're on, on the air. air. Um, yeah, um, I have two kids, and uh, I'm pretty careful about um, you know what I buy, and I don't buy any high fructose corn syrup or anything like that. Um, and I was hearing you guys say that uh, soy milk and tofu and mm-hmm. all of those products also have polyunsaturated fat in them. So I was wondering if you could maybe clarify about the other soy products other than just the oil factor. Well, the the soy has a goitrogenic um, effect. It's the um, the soy flavonoid in there that is also thyroid suppressive, and that's why you don't want to eat soy products. They might not have a lot of soy oil in them, but they have a lot of a goitrogenic effect. And it has been shown that 11 ounces, a study that was done a couple years ago, 11 ounces of soy milk a day in a healthy individual, not someone who already has disease and isn't healthy, is enough to suppress thyroid function. Okay, wow. This has just been a really enlightening show. You guys have, uh, I've heard so many things I've never heard before. So um, I really appreciate you guys being on the air. Well, you're very very welcome, welcome. and the best advice I have to feed your children is the least processed foods, whole foods. I give him tons of chocolate soy milk because he eats so much dairy, cottage cheese and butter and everything else. I was just trying to balance out his diet a bit so that he's not eating quite so much dairy products, and he just loves the chocolate soy milk, so I give him quite a bit of that every single day. Well, maybe you just want to uh, replace it with chocolate, make your own milk. chocolate milk. Yeah. And, and yeah, I have Dutch, Dutch cocoa, and, you know, we still have milk in our house, too, so I could totally do that. And just um, to make sure to include plenty of fruit. Children need lots of fruit. Soft fruits are the best. Soft, ripe fruits. Bananas, if they're very ripe. Um, otherwise, they can have a latex-like allergy, banana allergy. But, yeah, I found that my two-year-old actually really prefers eating stuff straight from my, my garden, too, like, Food that he won't eat necessarily if I buy it at the store. He he loves picking it right off the vine, and he'll eat it like that for some reason. That's exactly uh, the I same. I just find it amazing. It's wonderful. It, it's wonderful. That's the same as with my four-year-old niece. She yeah. loves everything out of the garden. Yeah, it's been it's been really amazing since we had the garden. How much his his diet has improved just just because he's so much more open to the new experience. Um, of picking it himself and just eating it right there. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. That's the way it always used to be. Yeah, I really appreciate your show. This has just been been really great. It's been been awesome information. Well, thank you you for your call. (laughs) Have a good one. You you. too. Okay, I think there's another call on the line. Hello. Hello. Listen, thank you so much for the program. And I did not catch your show last week and don't want to take up a lot of your time because you have a lot of valuable information you're giving out. I'm actually someone who was diagnosed four weeks ago with hypothyroid and just started the medication three weeks ago. Okay. Are you on? I'm on a very small dose, 25 milligrams of Levoxyl. Okay. And um, I eat a really clean diet. Um, I'm blessed. I live in Arcata, so I can go to the farmer's market, and I it's 90. 
five percent of my diet is home cooked fresh food from the farmer's market. But what I'm wanting is um, additional information about dietary do's and don'ts. I read up on the soy and used to take a lot of soy until I realized that it's not good because I have breast cancer Absolutely. happening with yeah. a sibling yeah, a year not, older than I yeah, am and yeah. lots of cancer in the family, so yeah. I try to stay away from mm -hmm. the soy. But I do drink a lot of almond milk and I like peanut butter and I like almond uh -oh. butter. Bad, bad, bad. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Sorry, bad. you should cut it out of your diet now. If you want, you can take our toll-free number and call us and give us your yes, email yeah. and I can email yeah. you a do and don't yeah, diet absolutely. sheet for your thyroid. That's, that's exactly the best thing, what I would like. That's the best thing you can do. Call us call us on our toll-free number and, just and to we'll say, email you the, uh, the diet sheet. Okay, what's your toll-free number? Okay. Go ahead. 888-926-4372. Thank you so much. And I just have one more thing program. I want to tell you, and that is whoever your prescribing doctor is, and um, since you called in, I want to tell you my advice, and that is to switch to Armour Throid or Nature Throid or West Throid, right. one of the natural glandulars because it has both T3 and T4, whereas Lavoxyl is just T4. Right. And then that relies on your liver to do the um, conversion into the active form, which is T3. And it's much uh, a much better alternative for people than taking Synthroid or okay, Levoxyl. Okay, so Armorthroid, and what were the other two? Armor, they're all the same. They're a, uh, they're a porcine raw glandular, a thyroid glandular. So it's Armorthroid, Naturethroid, or Westthroid. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, have a good night. Okay, there's another caller. Uh, hello. Hi, you're um, on the air. I have a question uh, concerning uh, soy products. What do you think of uh, tempeh, the fermented soy product? Do you think it's as harmful as uh, uh, other soy products? I don't think it's as harmful. I think if grains and beans were eaten in a little bit more traditional way, they're a little bit better. But for someone who is hypothyroid or has some hypothyroid symptoms, my advice is do not eat anything that could possibly suppress your thyroid. Okay, and also I'd like to uh, make a comment that uh, I started eating uh, coconut oil um, probably about three or four years ago, and I lost about 20 pounds after Absolutely. I started eating it. So yeah. um, <laughs> it go. does, uh, uh, it, it's very good for weight loss. Absolutely, yeah. It's very it's, good for weight it's loss. It's what they call a thermogenic product. So it increases, it increases your body's metabolism and your oxygen consumption. It improves the function of your thyroid, and your thyroid governs every metabolic process in your body. So that involves heat production, uh, muscle activity, uh, sympathetic drive. So, yeah, that's what we said in the beginning. The whole coconut thing is essentially a very good saturated fat that it, it supports your thyroid, feeds it, and allows you to lose fat while eating fat. And in the 1940s when they were experimenting with animals, they found they lost weight. I don't know if you heard that part earlier in the show. Uh, I did. That's just about when I uh, turned it on. But the thing is, is that they didn't want, uh, the American Soy Association at that time did not want all these imported corn oil, um, coconut oils to come in. They wanted to sell their soy and corn oil. And so they boycotted all these coconut oils. And that's why we haven't until just recently, say in the last 10 years, heard all this re um, research that was done in the 1940s. For crying out loud, it's 2008. Why haven't we heard this? Why is it only just coming out in the past five to 10 years? Well, all I know is uh, I, I lost weight on it, and um, I'm sure others could too. And it's also it tastes good, and I like it. So that's, it. Uh, that's all I have, and, and thanks a lot for the show. Thank you. Thank for you call. for your call. Okay, so do you want to carry on? Yeah. 
Well, we have um, a couple more minutes here. We've got six minutes. So, off today, it is nearly impossible to eat at restaurants or buy packaged foods that don't have soy oil in the ingredients. Often labels simply state vegetable oil. Dr. Ray P., Ph.D. physiologist who has worked with progesterone and related hormones said since 1968, I think he's in his 70s now, says that the certain, sudden surge of polyunsaturated oils into the food chain post-World War II has, con, has caused many changes in hormones. He writes, they're polyunsaturated, the polyunsaturated oils, their best understood effect is the interference with the function of the thyroid gland. Unsaturated oils block thyroid hormone secretion, its movement in the circulatory system, and the response of tissue to the hormone. When the thyroid hormone is deficient, the body is generally exposed to increased levels of estrogen. And another small point I want to make is sometimes people might eat a perfect thyroid-promoting diet, which is very rare because there's so much corn and soy in our diet and in our meat that we eat or our vegetables. But there's... Environmental toxins, Andrew mentioned earlier, high levels of mercury suppress thyroid, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, a lot of these chemicals interfere with estrogen and further suppress the thyroid. The thyroid hormone is essential for making the protective hormones progesterone and pregnenolone, so these hormones are lowered when anything interferes with the function of the thyroid. The thyroid hormone is required for using and eliminating cholesterol. So cholesterol is likely to be excessively raised by anything which blocks the thyroid function. There is a growing body of research concerning soy's detrimental effect on the thyroid gland. Much of this research centers on the phytoestrogens, the phyto means plant, that are found in soy. In the 1960s, when soy was introduced into infant formulas, it was shown that soy was goitrogenic, caused goiters, and the babies started developing goiters. When iodine was supplemented, the incidence of goiter dramatically reduced. However, a retrospective epidemiological study by Fort et al. showed that teenage children with a diagnosis of autoimmune thyroid disease were significantly more likely to have received soy formula as infants, 18 out of 59 children, 31%, when compared to their healthy siblings, which was only at 9 out of 76 12%, or control group, which was 7 out of 54, 13%. So it was 31% of the children who developed, teenage children who developed autoimmune thyroid disease had received soy formula as an infant. When healthy individuals without any previous thyroid disease were fed 30 grams of pickled soybeans per day for one month, Ishizuki et al. reported goiter and elevated individual thyroid-stimulating hormone levels, although still within the normal range in 37 healthy iodine-sufficient adults. One month after stopping soybean consumption, individual TSH values decreased to the original levels and goiters were reduced in size. And as I stated earlier, 11 ounces, which is, you know, a cup and a half of soy milk is enough to suppress someone's thyroid. Traditionally, Polyunsaturated oils such as soybean oil have been used for livestock feed because they cause animals to gain weight. These oils are made up of what is known as long-chain fatty acids, the kind of fatty acids that promote weight gain. In the North Carolina State University's Extension Swine Husbandry, 1998-2000, departmental report, for example, was a study entitled Effect of Dietary Fat Source, Level and Feeding Interval on Pork Fatty Acid Composition. 
Ironically, since the market in its low-fat dogma of recent years is demanding leaner meats, this study showed that one could produce leaner meat and reduce the weight on pigs by reducing by reducing their intake of soy oil and instead substituting it with saturated animal fat. According to Dr. Ray Pete, the fattening effect of these polyunsaturated oils, primarily soy and corn, is due to the presence of the, quote, essential fatty acids, linoleic and linolenic, long-chain fatty acids which have an anti-thyroid effect. Dr. Pete says linoleic and linolenic acids, the essential fatty acids, and other polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are now fed to pigs to fatten them in the form of corn and soybeans, cause the animal's fat to be chemically equivalent to the vegetable oil. In the late 1940s, chemical toxins were used to suppress the thyroid function of pigs to make them get fatter while consuming less food. When that was found to be carcinogenic, it was then found that corn and soybeans had the same antithyroid effect, causing the animals to be fattened at low cost. The animal's fat becomes chemically similar to the fats in their food, causing it to be equally toxic and equally fattening. So there you go. Well, it's uh, 7.58, so we're going to begin to wrap it up now. But um, I think next month we will continue, um, although there's not too much left. I, I think there's certainly more information that we can find to help make people aware of the changes that are in the winds. So you've been listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD. 91.1. Uh, my name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannes and Murray. Thank you for listening. And until the same time, the third Friday from 7 to 8 p.m. in September, uh, we'll see you then. Take care. Good night.